Um, thank you all for joining us today for our discussion of the topic of the Haitian immigration crisis. My name is Irene Friedel. I'm a staff attorney at the Pair Project in Boston. The Pair Project is a nonprofit organization that provides pro bono legal services to individuals seeking asylum and other forms of humanitarian relief. I'm going to ask each of our panelists to introduce them, uh, introduce themselves, starting with Sarah Wilson. Good afternoon. Um, I'm Sarah Wilson. I'm a legal fellow at Lawyers for Civil Rights, which is a nonprofit organization in Boston that um, helps immigrants and communities of color through pro bono services. Um, I was also a part of the Haitian complaint that we recently filed, and I will speak to that further in this session. Um, Dr. Gabo. Yes, good afternoon, everyone. Such a pleasure to be with you. Uh, my name is Dr. Gabo with IPSI, the Immigrant Family Services Institute, uh, and a nonprofit organization serving uh, mainly immigrants with a focus on the Haitians. So we've been around for, a couple, uh, for at least uh, now six years, and uh, we work with uh, immigrants around their full integration into their communities. Such a pleasure to be with you. Thank you, and Nancy. And she's on mute. Okay, <laughs> good start. Okay, I'm Nancy Kelly. I'm with Greater Boston Legal Services, which is the largest legal services organization in New England. And um, we've done within GBLS done work with immigrants since its founding over 100 years ago. I'm also with the Harvard Immigration and Refugee Clinic, which has been in existence for over 30 years. And um, we have represented um, uh, asylees, refugees from all over the world, but done a lot of work with the Haitian community throughout that time. Thank you. So according to data, Haitians are granted asylum in the United States at the lowest rate of any nationality. That in turn means they're deported to Haiti in extremely high numbers for decades. Haitians have faced discriminatory barriers and policies by our government relative to asylum seekers from other parts of the region. Cubans, for example, have long been treated favorably based on our government's Cold War era policy of opposing communism in the hemisphere. While at the same time, our government has supported the various regimes in Haiti, including military dictatorships, and we have consistently adopted a policy of turning Haitians away, despite that Haitians suffer enormously at home frequently on grounds involving political persecution. Through many US presidents, Haitians have typically been classified as economic migrants without valid grounds to seek asylum. They have been detained at Guantanamo Bay. They have been the first asylum, um, sorry, ICE, equivalent of ICE detainees in Florida many years ago. This policy of treating Haitians as not as economic migrants and not truly asylum applicants has saturated every corner of our immigration bureaucracy. Today, we are going to talk about the current plight of Haitians who have recently come through the border and are now seeking protection here in Boston. We are also going to talk about steps that should be taken that change the policy and outcomes for our Haitian community members. And with that, I'm going to ask the first question to Wilson. Um, Wilson, in connection with your work for Lawyers for Civil Rights, can you describe for us the firsthand experiences that were told to you by Haitian immigrants who are at the southern border? 
Yeah, so in partnership with Haitian Americans United, we were informed of several Haitian families arriving to Boston, uh, which has the third largest Haitian population in the United States. Uh, so we took it upon ourselves to go meet them and hear firsthand experiences of their um, time in US custody at the detention center and uh, as they made their way to Boston from the border. So we ended up interviewing 48 individuals and there were several trends that we kept hearing through interviews with multiple individuals and families. This led to us filing a complaint with the Department of Homeland Security urging for DHS and the Inspector General to perform an investigation into the conditions that many of these Haitian families shared with us of their time in US custody. And also in this complaint, among other things, were urgent policy changes, especially around language access, um, around giving documents in Haitian Creole, um, access to food, shelter, hygiene, and medical care for individuals in custody at the border, and the reduction of overcrowding and taking further COVID-19 precautions, um, including a 72-hour release instead of holding individuals uh, in overcrowded cells for a long period of time. So firsthand encounters from these families really covered harrowing conditions um, that the mistreatment at the border, it, it was really eye-opening and revealed a lot about the treatment once Haitians become um, come into the US and are into the custody of the United States. So first, this was that there are no COVID precautions. There were no COVID tests given. Um, they were denied medical care. There were no vaccines offered. There were no social distancing or COVID-19 protocols taken at the border or while in detention. This also came up, um, and I can speak to this more later, but LCR, um, performed a fact-finding mission at the border after meeting with these families and saw firsthand and learned firsthand more of these conditions around COVID-19 protocols that are not happening. Um, and so I can speak further to that in a bit. But when we spoke to these families, they mentioned being denied food. For instance, uh, there was a mother who was given one slice of bread and told to share it with her child who she had with her in custody. Another mother reported only being fed apples and honey and was also um, forced to ration these meek, meager food portions out between two individuals over a day's time, if given food at all. We also had multiple reports from families that they could go a day or two of processing and being moved from detention center to another location without having been given any food. Um, and so this just speaks to the level of the food and lack of that was given at the border. In addition to that was shelter. Some individuals were kept outside for periods of time before they could be moved to an indoor detention center. Um, some individuals, for instance, a woman who was visibly six months pregnant was forced to sleep on a concrete floor um, crowded with other individuals on a single piece of cardboard. Um, these conditions are unacceptable, unconstitutional, and it was extremely eye-opening to hear what these families had gone through, not only to get to the border, but their experiences in the custody of the United States. 
Um, to the language access point uh, in our complaint, urging DHS to provide information and documents in Haitian Creole. Uh, these families received no documents in Haitian Creole or a language they could understand. Many of these families only received immigration proceeding documents in English or Spanish. And so uh, their ability to fully engage in, in immigration proceedings and understand their responsibilities was limited because the United States was not meeting a language access obligation to these families entering the United States. Um, hearing these experiences of these families um, was extremely heartbreaking and drove us to file this complaint because we demanded that something needs to be done and an investigation needs to be had. There is no excuse for a middle-aged man um, blacking out and fainting because of his 19-day stay, he was malnourished and didn't have enough food. Um, it's unacceptable that a woman can enter U.S. custody pregnant and while in U.S. custody not receive medical care and end up miscarrying her child. And so these are all just pieces of several stories we heard from these 48 individuals that had arrived to Boston at the time. And since then, there have been several families and more individuals that have continuously arrived uh, to Boston. And so this number is small compared to the overall population experiencing these conditions. And so um, these are just a few of the stories and experiences that we heard while interviewing these families at Haitian Americans United. And um, I can speak further to our fact-finding mission that further validated several of these points, especially COVID-19 precautions and lack of medical care. Um, but these are the stories we heard just this October. This is very active, it's happening right now, and these families are in a lot of need, both those who have already entered the United States and those um, trying to enter or in custody currently. Thank you for sharing that. Now, Dr. Gabot, we understand that our government allowed certain vulnerable Haitians to enter the US while their cases were pending in the immigration court while deporting thousands of others. What um, are you seeing in terms of what are Haitians facing when they arrive in Boston? Thank you, thank you, Irene. Uh, great question, and uh, thank you, Sarah, for really giving an overview of the uh, you know horrific, horrific treatment of Haitians at the border, uh, which uh, could even continue while they are here. And the reason why I said that because when they arrive, they arrive basically with you know, whatever clothes that they are in the, on their back, that's all they have. And unfortunately, there has been no communication whatsoever with the uh, different, you know, uh, agencies to communicate with us to let us know exactly what's going on, who is coming, and what is what are the conditions. In fact, when they came, they came with different type of paperwork which you know does not make sense to any of those you know people uh, agencies uh, you know who are here to serve them so they came with no provision whatsoever at the state level there is no provision at the federal level there is no provision there is no communication so we had to be the lead agency to really you know, call on the all of the you know uh, agencies to let them know that you know we have you know families coming to our doors and we need help. 
and they are here with absolutely, absolutely nothing. So again, when they come because of the nature of the paperwork that they, 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 they receive. So there is so much confusion in terms of, you know, how do we help them? How do we assist them? And they, they, uh, they, they have this, you know, fear that just continues to grow because when they go to ICE, for example, you know, they don't know whether or not they're going to remain in custody or whether or not they're going to be released to the community. And we also have those who have the ankle bracelet uh, no, we have a pregnant woman who said every time, you know, that um, the signal goes with the ankle bracelet, so her heart keep on, you know, uh, uh, moving, and she wants someone to help her to release, that, uh, you know, the, the bracelet. So um, documentation issue, you know, access to resources like myself, DTA, all of those resources that they basically could have access to based on the you know, uh, Cuban Haitian and trade program because of the nature of the documentation that they have, very confusing, no, no step, you know, no specific recommendation on, in terms of, you know, what status do they have now? All of those make it so difficult for them to access anything. And uh, we just heard that, you know, two families were, after they came uh, here in the US, they got deported. And again, as, like, when I said, it's a, it is a huge mess. It is a huge mess. And, uh, as of today, we are still waiting to hear, to get some clarification from the Department of Health and Human Services or from UCIS in terms of, okay, what are we doing with those families who are here? Currently, uh, from the time that Sarah came to now, you know, the number of families have like, you know, more than doubled. We are, we're talking about over 500 families right now who are here, you know, seeking help at all levels. You know, we have babies, we have pregnant women, we have, you know, uh, people who need, you know, medical care. We have people who need mental health uh, care. All of those needs are here. And unfortunately, like I said, the lack of communication with, you know, the different, uh, you know, agencies makes it very hard on us to really do the work that we, we are supposed to do. Um, thank you. And could you speak a little bit more about what resources actually exist that you're able to connect um, individuals to and what resources are completely absent? Like in particular, how where are these individuals being housed? How are they getting food? Are they able to get mass health care? That yes. sort of thing. Thank, thank you again. Uh, uh, great question. And again, uh, when we started to to receive, you know, to welcome those families here, we were completely in the dark, not knowing exactly what was coming our way. So when we, we, we had conversation with them, understanding exactly how they made it here, because we didn't even know because we heard every day that there were so many flights, you know, doing like what they call the expediting process to really send people back to Haiti. So, but no one communicated to us in terms of, you know, who is coming and who's not coming. So it's as they started to really make their way through our doors that we had conversation with them and that we understood that, yes, some families who, are, who got lucky enough, that's, that's the only way to put it because the same families who are here, you know, if you are comparing them to the ones that are, that are being deported, there is no real difference. You know, we're talking about families with small children, uh, pregnant women, all of them got deported. So when they started to come, we realized that, wow, we have an issue. So who is going to take care of those families? So that's when we started to make phone calls, you know, connecting with all of the agencies that we can uh, connect with, calling on the city of Boston. And we have to say that we are so grateful, you know, for the leadership of, you know, the mayor's office um, of New Boston, and especially under the leadership of Yusufi Valley, who was able to say, you know what? Yes, it is a humanitarian crisis. 
no agency is ready because again, they didn't know they were not ready. So we, as a nonprofit organization, we had to make a decision. Are we going to send those people out to the door or are we going to take care of them? So we decided that we do the ladder, we will take care of them. So we call on the community, on all of the you know churches, organization, and they were the one to first bring us as you know many resources as possible around clothes, shoes, food, so that we can really support this family. So since September, that's what we have been doing, connecting with the community and receiving you know uh, donated items so that we can serve. And then through the mayor's office right now, what we are what they are helping us to do is to really help those families to access housing at least for the first month. So we have to go and list the house, put them into the unit, then connect with the RAF program so that they can continue to pay for their, for their rent. So it's a, it's a very evolving situation where we really had to step up, you know, for the first two months, you know, on our own, you know, trying uh, to find resources. But currently, again, thanks to all of the agencies, GBLS, you know, LCR, you know, uh, all of the, the other agencies, Mira Coalition. So thankfully to all of them, we've been we've been trying to find ways to help those families access other you know resources such as myself, DTA, and so on and so forth. So every day we are trying to connect with the different agencies and the different advocates to help us you know give uh, resources to those families. And we will talk about the um, budget amendment again that we had to go and advocate for you know some money to be set aside for the Haitians. We can talk about that later. But it's been a lot, a lot for, for on, on us because most of the families are coming through our doors when we were not ready. So we had to do everything in our power to serve them because of everything that they went through. There is no way that we could turn our back uh, on them. So we had to do that. And then we are so grateful to all of the partners and all of the people who have been able to support us to help us do the work. Thank you. So Nancy, tell us um, what Haitian immigrants face when they arrive at the Boston Immigration Court. Let's talk about the legal, the legal part of the journey that they go through. Nancy, you are still on uh, mute. <laughs> Muted. Okay, sorry. Okay, <laughs> I'm gonna get the hang of this. Um, I've only been doing it for a year and a half, so you know. It's like, anyway, um, so so what I what I think it's important to understand first of all is like where does the Boston Immigration Court sit before we have um, before we've seen the recent influx of immigrants, and um, the court is completely overloaded. Okay, completely backlogged and overloaded. Um, a lot of what is is happening is the result of the last four years. Um, a lot of it is, um, uh, well, um, nationally, there are over a million four hundred thousand cases backlogged in the immigration court system. In Boston alone, there are over seventy eight thousand cases pending before the court. And we have eight local immigration judges. So uh, the workload there is kind of unimaginable if you think about it. And um, now we have an influx of people coming to Boston and we've learned that Boston is the number one resettlement place for the recent arriving families coming across the border. And that includes um, not only Haitians, but also Central Americans, a large number of Brazilians, um, but a, a, a substantial number of the people coming in are obviously Haitians. Um, at this point, what, what the um, 
what the court has done nationally is set up something called the designated docket. And the recently arrived family units, anybody arriving at the US, anybody who's apprehended between a port of entry um, and who arrived on or after May 28th of 2021 is being put on a special docket called the designated docket. And this docket is uh, set up with the goal of moving these cases forward within 300 days. Now, if you think about how long cases generally are pending before the court, certainly in particular, given the backlog we have, uh, cases pend for years. But what is happening here is these cases are being pulled forward and being put on an expedited docket. Um, as of October, there were 17,000 cases queued up for this docket. Um, and that number is, growing all the time. Um, two of the Boston immigration judges have put have been put exclusively on that docket. And at this point, what's happening is there are hearings being conducted called master calendar hearings, which are um, when a large number of people are brought into the courtroom um, and expected to essentially plead to charges. Um, they are, this is causing other problems for the court, for example, those all the cases that were handled by those judges are being put um, out to judges who are sitting in other states and other people's hearings are being held um, by video conference rather than in person. Um, so it's got a ripple effect in in other cases. But but what is the individual face? What is the individual face when they come to Boston and they're everyone is going to find themselves in removal proceedings. So essentially they've been released to um, have a removal hearing. Um, they are responsible to three different agencies. They're, they're thrown into a system that is difficult for me to figure out, having practiced immigration law for 30 years. <laughs> okay, So you can imagine what someone who is recently arrived from Haiti, who doesn't speak English, who's handed a bunch of papers, or maybe not handed any papers. That's, of course, a problem. Um, how do they how do they navigate the system? Well, they're responsible to two agencies at least, and in some cases three. They're responsible to ICE, okay, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, which is essentially responsible for monitoring them to make sure that they show up for their hearings. Um, they are the ones who actually begin the process by issuing the document, the charging document, which is called a notice to appear. Um, sometimes people are getting those those documents down at the border, and um, that causes some types of problems. Sometimes they're not getting anything at the border, which causes a whole other type of problem. So many people are being told to simply show up when they get to Boston to go to ICE, which is up in Burlington, um, not very easily accessible by public transportation, and um, and to report to ICE. And at that point, ICE will issue something called a notice to appear. We'll get back to that in a minute. Others um, among this group, some people are also responsible, as Dr. Grabos said, um, some people are, are have bracelets on. So they have tracking monitors on their ankles. And um, those people, those are, are monitored by a, a, a private organization called GEO. And they are responsible also to reporting to them and have to negotiate with them over the, the, the device that they are, are made to wear. Um, and then of course, everybody is responsible to the immigration court because that's where your case lies. 
Um, and that's where you will get ordered removed if you don't comply with what you're expected to do. Um, so people are completely confused. People don't know the difference between GEO and ICE, between ICE and the immigration court. And many people think when they go and report to ICE, that's for their hearing. So it's, it's, it's extremely confusing for people. Um, so so what, what should happen? How is it, how is it um, designed? Um, basically, the individuals should be provided with a notice to appear, which is a document that has the charges against them that explains, you know, how they entered the country in a couple of sentences, and then cites the statute under which they're being charged with being removable, um, and then provides or is supposed to provide the date, time, and place of their first hearing, okay? There's a lot of problems that we're seeing with that. We're seeing people showing up who never got notice of their hearing and then find out in some cases um, that they actually got removed in absentia. Um, so people, assuming they get the paper, they're told to show up at a particular time for their hearing, and that's what's called a master calendar hearing. And a, a lot of people, I mean, there was one, one uh, master calendar I heard of a couple, about a month ago where there were over 100 people called in on that day. So, you know, these are, these are hearings where a lot of people come, you're before the judge for a couple of minutes, and you're expected to, to plead and to uh, plead to the charges and then say what it is if there's something you want to apply for as protection, uh, what is that? And so you're supposed to put that out. Um, obviously, all of this is extremely confusing and requires representation, right? <clears throat> generally, or not generally, always, the court will give you at least one continuances, continuance to get a lawyer. So, so far, we have not seen people moved forward into their actual, it would be called a merits hearing, where they actually have to put forward their application for relief, because the people who are showing up are being told you have, we're giving you a continuance, you have to come back, please come back with a lawyer. And so um, the likelihood, though, of people actually getting representation is, is practically non-existent, okay? The... Um, Basically, I looked at the courts list. The court gives out a list of agencies that provide free representation. Now you have to understand people, as Dr. Gabo said, don't have any resources, they don't have any money. They're not allowed to work, they're not allowed to get employment authorization. So, you know, they're really dependent on, on what they can get in terms of, of assistance for free. There is no right to representation in immigration proceedings. There's a right to have a lawyer if you can find one. Um, but it's not like a criminal proceeding, even though the stakes are, are as high, um, you don't have the right. So basically you're dependent on what's available. Um, the court gives a list of agencies that are available to provide representation generally. And that list um, at this point has seven agencies listed. And I know the circumstances of those agencies and everybody is way over their heads um, everybody is dealing with the fallout from the last four years, as well as, you know, ongoing cases that keep coming in and the ability to handle a caseload um, that we see. It's like a tsunami kind of coming at the, the advocates and the courts. Um, there is one uh, arrangement that's made. There's a contract that the court has um, set up with Catholic Charities. Um, 
to provide uh, know your rights presentations to people and to do um, advice for pro se filings, which is great. Um, but it isn't, it's not a replacement for representation. These cases are extremely, extremely complicated. Um, as, um, as Sarah said, uh, or I'm sorry, I think Irene said that Haitians have an extremely low grant rate um, for uh, cases. Um, if you look at, okay, the grant rate, the last I checked over the last 20 years was about 18%. If you factor into that, um, overall, people who are unrepresented have about a 10% chance of winning their case. Um, so that decreases the, the chances even further. Um, it's a very, very complicated statute. It's essentially one sentence. If you look at it, it looks um, it looks simple, but it is not. It's extremely complicated. The cases we're seeing coming out of Haiti are extremely complicated. Um, they have uh, uh, issues that are difficult to explain, um, but there's no question about what's happening to folks in Haiti and what they're fleeing, and they're fleeing an extremely dangerous situation. So stop there. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Nancy. And could you explain um, how useful is temporary protected status or TPS sure. for patients right now? Okay, so temporary protected status um, is a, a status that the government can grant to uh, individuals on a countrywide basis, right? They can look at the overall situation and if they've made a determination um, that it is unsafe to send people back to a particular country, um, then they uh, can grant a temporary um, status to individuals from that country. So basically you have to show um, when you entered and you have to show that you're from there. Um, in, um, individuals from Haiti have been here for years and years and years on something called on the temporary protected status um, that was designated back in 2010 and extended in 2011 when um, there was a, an absolutely devastating earthquake in Haiti that, that people still have yet to recover from. Um, what happened this year is that they redesignated temporary protected status so that at this point they did it on August 3rd. Um, and basically, if you have been residing in the United States since uh, July 29th of 2021, you are eligible to apply for temporary protected status, which will protect you um, until the beginning of uh uh, till February 3rd of 2023. So it's temporary, it can be extended, um, but that takes care of people who were here. It takes care of people who may have arrived, um, you know, up to the end of July, but it does nothing for the, the large numbers of people who have arrived since that time. Interestingly, the, the designation um, of temporary protected status talks about the conditions in Haiti, uh, talks about rising food insecurity, talks about um, the health conditions, um, talks about the environmental conditions which make people vulnerable to, to, um, to natural disasters, and talks about the political situation, the political instability, and the huge numbers of human rights violations that are being perpetrated against the Haitian people. Okay, thank you. So um, 
we have now identified a lot of problems that Haitians are facing. And we want to spend some time on this panel talking about solutions, demands, action items that organizations and all of us can take part in. And I'm gonna start with Wilson. Um, Wilson, you mentioned that Lawyers for Civil Rights has filed a complaint with the Department of Homeland Security. And can you speak to that complaint and what actions, demands um, LCR has asked DHS to take to help um, or alleviate the strains on Haitian immigrants at the border going forward? Yeah, absolutely. So before I get into the specific re requests we've made, I just want to further emphasize all of the points Nancy was making about the lack of representation and the great need for attorneys to help represent these individuals in these proceedings. It is certainly an area, if there are any uh, participants today interested uh, as an attorney, feel free to reach out to any of us, um, but it certainly is an area that really needs a lot of attention because individuals need representation in these areas. Um, in addition to the complaint that LCR filed to the Department of Homeland Security, we also submitted a request to the Secretary of Homeland Security, Attorney General Merrick Garland, and the Secretary of Health and Human Services. Um, in this request, we specifically urged the use of discretion and authority of these individuals to grant protections for Haitians um, through humani expedited humanitarian parole, parole in place, or at least deferred um, removal. So we set forth a few action items to specifically make requests that will allow individuals to enter the United States, um, seek safety in the United States, but otherwise put a stop on the removal proceedings as Dr. Gobo um, really spoke to that are currently happening. And so uh, for the first point, the expedited humanitarian parole. So humanitarian parole is appropriate when there is a compelling emergency or an urgent humanitarian interest or public benefit for granting um, humanitarian parole for those entering the United States. So there are statutory and regulatory provisions that vest full discretion um, for the Attorney General and the Department of Homeland Security Secretary to grant a collective broad sweeping action that would allow um, individuals to seek safety in the United States without being removed. And so we are seeking an expedited humanitarian parole um, for the Secretary of DHS and Attorney General to acknowledge sort of what Nancy was talking to, it happened in TPS, um, but acknowledge the conditions, acknowledge this humanitarian crisis, the uh, instability in Haiti, food insecurity, political unrest, natural disasters. I mean, acknowledge and recognize the conditions as the emergency that they are. Um, so that's for individuals entering the United States or, or coming to the border to enter the United States to see, seek refuge. We also requested parole in place. It's similar to humanitarian parole, but it is for individuals who are currently in the United States. So it, grant, it would grant a broad collective parole for individuals who have already entered the United States. And as Nancy pointed out, the protective status 
only applies to certain individuals who are able to apply. But just as we saw with our interviews in October with families still entering and the several families that have entered since, those individuals need protected for the absence of TPS. And so parole in place would grant uh, the same parole protections and provisions that the expedited humanitarian parole request would do, but for individuals already in the United States. And at least at the end of the day, defer removal proceedings. Um, for the foreseeable future, Haiti is not in a condition to safely send any individual family or child back uh, to the country. And so at least deferring removal proceedings for the foreseeable future um, while conditions persist in the nation uh, is the is the action that needs to happen. And it can happen because there is a broad discretionary authority um, by the Attorney General Merrick Garland and Secretary of Department of Homeland Security to do so. So we have made the request um, in addition to our initial complaint that highlighted the experiences of Haitian individuals arriving to Boston. We made this specific request of broad sweeping action that can be had and should be had um, by the Attorney General and Secretary of Department of Homeland Security to grant protections for individuals who are here and who are still um, entering the United States to seek safety and, and refuge. Thank you. And Dr. Gabo, what programs would you like to see our government create to solve some of the inequities um, experienced by Haitians seeking protection in the, United, in the United States? I mean, it's 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 uh, there's a lot, there's a lot to 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 say, especially given you know the historical you know uh, nature of the treatment that the U.S. has you know been you know uh, applying toward Haiti. So currently, uh, we the first thing is that deportation needs to stop and deportation needs to stop ESCP. Because again, we know that the US has a policy when people are coming to seek refuge that they should at least take the time to listen to those people and process their cases. So currently it's about, you know, having flights every day. You know, all the money that they spend, you know, using those flights to send people back to Haiti, that money could have been used to help people restore their lives here because we're talking about people who have nothing, they left everything behind, they have nothing with them. So wasting so much money in, on flights, on all of the you know, uh, uh, people who are working toward deporting people, that money could have been used to really support people here. So they need to stop deportation. And currently one of the biggest needs that we have is around mental health. All of the families who are here with us, all of them, not no exception, they have, endured so much trauma, you know, either through, you know, the, the hands of ice, you know, as uh, uh, Sarah was telling you, the treatment at the border was inhumane, but before even they get to the border, throughout their journey, they were attacked, they were robbed, you know, I mean, chiefs just, you know, went, went around them and stole everything that they had. And I mean, just to name it, it was all about trauma and trauma and trauma. So we need to have, you know, like a, a good mental health system in place to really care for those people. We're also talking about babies who are here, you know, children who are here, who 
do, I mean, they have not been able to go to school because of the nature of the trip that, you know, their parents were taking. So educational needs is a big. Housing, as you, as you can imagine, you know, the first top one is housing, housing, because again, when they arrive here, they have no place to stay. And now we're talking about winter time when they need a place, a warm place to stay. So this is more than, you know, an urgent plea. This is something that we need to do ASAP. So we, as an organization, we are now, what we are doing, we are leasing, you know, units to place people. It cannot be done like this way, you know, for us as a small nonprofit organization to do all of that. So we need, you know, the state, we need the federal, the federal government to step in. I was reading last week where President Biden signed a $7 billion bill to support, you know, the arrival of the Afghan. So what do you do with the Haitians? Why is it that we are always, you know, treated as a second-class citizen? And the sad thing is that what the U.S. doesn't recognize is that when you, when they are, you know, doing what they are doing against us, they are pushing all other nations to treat us exactly the same or even worse. Because they said that if the U.S. being the leader, you know, country around the world for democracy, for, you know, uh, you know, uh, civic engagement and so on and so forth. If the U.S. can treat us that way, why not them? You see what I mean? So the U.S. is sending a very wrong message all around the world, you know, for other countries to really treat us as not even second class, but third or fourth class citizen. And I think at this time, we cannot tolerate that. We should not accept that. And for all of us here, we need to raise our voice. We need to say enough is enough. Enough. The U.S. can do better. The U.S. should do better. Haitians are here. Haitians have a huge, you know, impact implication in the U.S. The way where U.S. is right now. So it's time to repair, you know, what they have done to us. It's time for them to step up and say that yes, we should be treated with respect. We should be treated with with, with dignity. So currently. So we had to fight at the state level to get, you know, the budget amendment, but nothing is coming from the federal government. And all of those people need access to services. And it's a, it's a humanitarian crisis. We need to step up. We need to do better. And we should do better. Thank you so much. And thank you for all your advocacy. Um, Nancy, what solutions might level the playing field for Haitians in the immigration court? I have to say, I don't know how to follow that. I I, that was amazing. I was a little Thank speechless you. myself. Yeah. Um, I, I guess I would I would add a couple of things to to what have been what has been said. One one thing that hasn't I don't think been mentioned yet is um, that temporary protected status can be redesignated, right? So it's it's a pretty straightforward, simple thing to simply pull the date forward. Um, and if that date were pulled forward and uh, so that rather than the end of July, it were the end of December or, you know, that would that would help a lot of the people who are already here and it would give them an avenue to, to getting themselves settled and getting the right to work and the right to, to be here and to, to put their feet down um, temporarily, but but it would be something. Um, the the other thing that I you know obviously the designated docket is is an impossible situation, um, and so I think it's impossible to it's impossible certainly for the people who find themselves on the docket because they're not going to get representation as it stands now. There simply isn't um, there aren't the resources to do that, and so 
um, you know, the, the big issue right now, I think, um, is trying to obviously trying to, to 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 slow down the process for these folks to give them the chance to actually get attorneys to actually be able to uh, to work with someone to put together a case that accurately explains what they've been through and, and makes the connections that are necessary to fit through the complicated law that they're facing. Um, but also um, they need attorneys. And so resources need to be put into providing attorneys to individuals. And that's, you know, it seems overwhelming at this point, but I think that's a critical need that has to happen because it's simply impossible to navigate this on your own. Thank you. I just, I just want to add that um, the lawyers that we've been working with uh, given the nature of the case of the new migrants, because they spent so much time in Chile or Brazil before they make it here, yeah. they said, you know, it's very, very unlikely that they, they will win any asylum case. So if nothing is done, you know, yeah. at the larger level, right. you know, even when we find attorney to represent them, they said 99% of them will not win, you know, their cases. So that's the reason why we need to push we need to push for a broader kind of you know, policy toward our brothers and sisters so that they can remain in the country and they can have access to at least basic, you know, uh, you know, uh, work permit or basic, you know, uh, health insurance and so on and so forth. So because it's 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 going to be tough. They already know it, it is it is unlikely that they will win any case. I, I agree. I think it needs to be a systemic solution, right? It needs to be a solution that actually applies to everyone. Um, I think the cases, um, just to, to dig in a little bit more, within the asylum system, there's something called firm resettlement, so that if, if you've spent time in a third country on your way to the U.S., you can be denied asylum. Um, a number of Haitians have spent time in, say, Brazil or Chile, um, but that question is, why did they leave those countries, and what conditions were they actually living under in those countries? And um, you know there there may be claims to be made, but it really is going to take somebody digging into those circumstances and explaining why it was not possible for them to continue to live where they were. But I agree, it needs to be systemic. Um, and Dr. Gabo, I'm hoping you can. I'm gonna put you back on the spot, but for those who are listening to this panel presentation today and who may be speaking to others about the Haitian crisis that you, all of you have eloquently discussed, what call to action would you give to individuals? What can individuals do to help, to contribute, to advocate, um, for the, to you know, alleviate the suffering of our community members? Yeah, I mean, um, great, great, great question because again, if we, if we talk and then we don't do anything, it's going to be just just talk. And uh, for all of you who are listening and who are watching this right now, so the first thing is to let's join forces. Let's join forces with uh, LCR, the Lawyers for Civil Rights. Let's join forces with all of the other, the GBL, GBLS and other advocates. Let's see how we can push, we can put some pressure because we know here, if we do not put pressure, nothing gets done. How do we put pressure together 
uh, so that you know at the federal level or whatever level that needs that things needs to happen that we can have those things to I mean to move the needle so that we can support our brothers and sisters. And at the individual level, if you are a lawyer and you think that you can help, please join us because we have those families here. And like for example, at the end of the year, we have at least ten of the families who are here who have appointment in December. At the end of December and then January, it's so many of them who have appointment. We need representation. So please, you know, come and let us know how you can help, how we can support. And spread the word, spread the word. Because again, like I said, no amount of money will, you know, be enough to really help us do all the work that we are doing. So currently, it's a matter of finding housing for them. And then when we find the housing, we need to furnish everything from A to Z, because again, we're talking about people who come empty handed. So any uh, financial support, any, you know, uh, donate, donation that you want to do to help us do the work, please let's do that. So uh, for December, for example, we are putting a program, Adopting a Child, because we're doing some Christmas party, to, for them to feel that they are welcome, that we care about them, because that's one of the things that we need to do. We need to show that we are different. We are different from what the, the government is doing. We are different from what ICE is doing and that we can show you know, compassion, we can show love. And as we are coming to the end of the year, let's, let's, let's see, let's figure out exactly how we can show those families that people do care about them. And every day when I see people coming to our doors with you know, bag of you know, clothes or shoes or giving, uh, bringing you know, some uh, cards, gift cards so that we can give them you know, as a way to show that we love, this really help us that feeling that we are not alone in this. So there are so many ways. It's a matter of you know, picking up the phone, make a phone call or send an email and we will be more than happy to talk to you in terms of other ways that you can help. Thank you, and I wonder if you could uh, provide your not your personal contact information, but the information that someone might need in order to contact your organization to provide these types of donations. Maybe you could just, just you're on mute, but just say it. Yeah, I, I put the, the website uh, on, on the chat. Uh, I hope that everyone can see it. It's uh, ifci-usa.org. And once you go there, we will find you know, all uh, the information that you need to really support. And we are here in Marapen, Marapen Square, for those of you who are in Boston, 1626 Blue Lab. So you can uh, you know, you know, go to the website, send an email, or come here, or call us. Uh, and I'm going to also put the phone number, uh, which is 617 I'm putting all of that information, but it's not just us, but, you know, Lawyers for Civil Rights, you know, GBLS, all of the other organizations that are working with us, we really want you to join forces, join hands with them, because again, we need help. We need help. We cannot do it alone. Okay. Thank you. And thank you so, so much. Thank you. So we have a few minutes left. I'm going to ask Wilson and Nancy for your closing, any closing thoughts and Wilson in particular, I'm curious if you have had um, has LCR received any response yet from Department of Homeland Security or any others in government to the complaint that's been filed? And are you are you expecting um, to, what kind of response are you expecting to receive? Yeah, so um, we recently received an inquiry into our complaint um, for more information so that uh, they can begin an investigation. So I, to Dr. Gabo's point, pressure, 
continuously keeping it up, putting the pressure on and, and bringing a further and further awareness to the fact that this is an issue. It's going to continue to be an issue. Families need help. Individuals need help. Um, and with that pressure of the complaint and, uh, and the work with um, Haitian Americans United in placing that complaint, we did receive a response recently. Um, and so we are going to work to ensure that all of the urgency and protocols and investigation that we were requiring the Department of Homeland Security to take, we are going to do the work that we need to do in order to ensure that they perform those requests. Um, it's extremely tragic conditions at the border and something needs to be done about it. And whether that's through an investigation with the Department of Homeland Security, whether that's through demanding broad sweeping action of humanitarian parole and parole in place, whether that's through individual representation and removal proceedings, action needs to be had, things need to be done, and these families need help. Um, there's no reason why families who fled a country fearing for their lives and their safety should enter the United States and receive further mistreatment, which is unconstitutional and inhumane, but also to come to Boston and be without resources to have the most effective proceedings um, that will assist them. So um, with that, I will continue, I can't top, but I will continue the call to action that Dr. Gabot um, placed so well. Um, but even on our fact-finding mission where two colleagues of Lawyers for Civil Rights went to the border, it just further confirmed these conditions. It further confirmed that even amongst the individual experiences we had heard from families in Boston who we had interviewed, there are no COVID precautions, there are no COVID protocols, there's no testing. So this goes beyond just removal and whether families can um, stay in Boston or stay in the United States. This is also a health crisis. There are families who are not being tested with COVID. They're being placed on crowded buses or in crowded detention centers or in rooms um, to sleep that are overcrowded. There are no safety protocols. And so I just want to add that beyond immigration, needs, there is also a call for public health and public health and safety for these individuals. Um, not to open a new chapter at our closing, but you know, just for instance, on a busing of 70 individuals to be removed from a detention center, two individuals who were tested after by nonprofit organizations um, at the border tested positive, which means all 70 individuals were had their health compromised at the border under in US custody because of a lack of these protocols. So I just want to further emphasize that this is a continuous call to action. There are several avenues to take um, action and make requests and draw attention to this issue at several angles because families need help um, in both immigration proceedings, treatment at the border, entry into the United States, and for health and safety and a lack of medical care in the custody of the United States. So um, with that, I will wrap up. I wanna thank everyone, but this is certainly not an issue that is reporting of the past. This is very active. It's gonna to continue to have issues arise. Um, and so whatever help that can be done around putting pressure on these issues and on the government to take broad sweeping action like they can needs to be done. 
Thank you. And Nancy, it has fallen to you for your one minute closing remarks. <laughs> We're counting on you to close on a positive note and you're on mute. Sorry, eventually I'll get it. I, I just said, I agree with, with everything you have both said. And I guess what I would um, simply say is again, um, while representation is desperately needed, um, there is um, the concern that these cases, given their posture and given the complexity, um, are, are um, it's fitting the, 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 what is it, the camel through the eye of the needle, right? But, um, but I just want to read uh, something that was in the, um, just a reality check. This is admitted by our government because it's part of the justification for why they gave TPS, the human rights component of the United Nations Integrated Office in Haiti and the Office of High Commissioner for Human Rights reported a staggering 333% increase in the number of human rights violations and abuses by law enforcement officials and non-state actors respectively against the right to life and security of person in the period between July 2018 and December 2019. So aside from the, you know, the, the, uh, the poverty and the food insecurity and the environmental issues, there is a real human rights crisis going on in Haiti. Thank you. One wonders why the government can grant TPS and at the same time deport thousands of people back to Haiti. But uh, I didn't mean to make that the last note. Thank you so much for all of you, uh, all of your comments. They were wonderful and inspiring and Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all so much. And thank you all to the attendees to, uh, for joining us today. And again, this webinar has been recorded and it will be uploaded on our Learn Online page. Uh, I hope everyone has a great rest of your day. Thank you all so much. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.